So if the government actually puts its own money behind these projects, the private sector will understand that is a signal that the government is really serious about this. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, I'm Mari Kirk, Director of Engagement and Impact at the USSC. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to their elders past, present, and future. In today's episode, we're getting a briefing on Upscale, a project run by our economic security team, to look at solutions for national security requirements through private sector finance. There's an area that has been historically fraught, uh, which is exactly the sort of challenging issue the center likes to take on. And to discuss this project and their new report on the topic, I'm delighted to welcome USSC's Director of Economic Security, Haley Channer, and Senior Economic Advisor, John Kunkel. Haley has worked across think tanks, government and nonprofits, and John describes himself as a recovering economist who has worked for the RBA, but also for industry groups, and most recently, Chief of Staff for Scott Morrison when he was Prime Minister. Both Haley and John were also Fulbright scholars researching in America, albeit in different decades. I'm really looking forward to recording this episode because Upscale, the Upscale project has been one of the most vibrant discussions at the center this year. Uh, and you've gotten representatives, not just across industry and government, but truly at the highest levels, even having White House officials join your workshops remotely. Uh, but they've been closed door sessions. And now you're publicly launching your report. So I'm really keen to get an inside peek at what you've learned from these discussions, what you think the solutions are and the pathway forward from here. And at the end, we'll get to hear the by the numbers stat from each of them. I don't know, do you guys think they'll surprise me? How are you feeling? Do you think you're gonna have anything new or exciting? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is the economic security segment, Mari. The numbers will be good. Okay, excellent. I, I mean, I'm a personal fan of the segment because I just, the stats people have are always quite fascinating and tell a story in and of themselves. Uh, so let's dive in. And first things first, uh, for those of you who weren't aware, Upscale is an acronym. Uh, so Haley, could you please share what it stands for? Yeah, thank you so much, Murray. And before I unveil what Upscale stands for, I also wanted to just say quickly, um, for those who don't know, uh, John and I, John is an older gentleman. I am a younger woman. And I have heard people describe us as the odd couple. And (laughs) for that reason, we have brought different dynamics to the project of Upscale. And there's been a lot of creative tension, which I think has been ultimately fantastic for the end result and the report. So I'm very happy to be a co-author with John on this project. Um, Upscale. So we knew we were going to be talking to people in defence and people in defence love acronyms. I'm speaking from experience because I worked for defence for five years and if you don't use an acronym, they are not listening. So Upscale stands for Using Private Sector Capital for the Alliance. The ALE is the alliance bit. And basically what we're trying to say with it is we're also trying to create this um, understanding that we need to upscale Australia's small and medium enterprise and also the private sector finance that funnels into those companies and also to the broader defence and national security enterprise. So 
upscale seemed like a really good way to convey that intention and also bring in the alliance dimension because a lot of the time in this report, we are drawing lessons from the United States experience and Australia has much to learn and adapt from the US experience because the US has been so deeply engaged in this um, endeavor of financing national security. Um, and as you can imagine, Mari, the US spends a lot of money on defense, um, Australia less so, but that's partly why we also need to inject some more capital um, into our national security requirements. And that's why we did the upscale project. Oh, exciting. And I like how it does kind of cut across those different sectors to try and find these new ideas. Um, and from what I've heard so far, it sounds like it's been quite effective in doing that. So I'm keen to hear each of your perspectives on this. But as you mentioned, the Australian government already provides billions of dollars of funding to the Department of Defense. Different scale and quantity than we see in the US, but still a lot of money. But why? And I gather this is the central premise of um, your whole project and report. Why do they need more money from the private sector? So, Mari, I guess um, a couple of points on that. Um, the first point really comes out of the Defence Strategic Review, which our colleague Peter Dean worked on, which came out in March this year. And that sort of sets the, the big picture st strategic context, context for Australia having a much more challenging security environment. So I think everyone understands in the abstract that the world's not quite as benign as what it was a decade ago. And therefore, we're going to need as a nation to spend more on national defence. Now, um, the government uh, obviously has a lot of other pressures on its plate, and that was all articulated recently in the demographic report that the Treasury put out, everything from aged care to national disability to just paying for all, for debt and other things, so uh, healthcare and et cetera. So um, in part, what we're trying to do is just sort of open up the vision for government to think that there are certain things that are clearly the responsibility that only government can do and, only, and government must fund, but there are other things, and it relates to sort of the whole backdrop of technological change, where if we're going to get advanced military capability. We need to draw on private sector expertise, but also private sector capital. And again, if we go back to the DSR, that set out a big pipeline of areas. And once you look at those, everything from infrastructure, developing northern bases to putting the requirements in place for workforce and the future submarine program to um, missile capability and domestic sort of sovereign capability more generally. There's just a huge pipeline of area there, and the private sector just has to be intimately involved in helping to deliver that. And just quickly, um, for our listeners, DSR refers to the Defence Strategic Review, which was um, Australia's big look at their uh, defence sector and how they might make a strategic plan. The first time one was released in nearly 40 years. So when you hear us use that acronym, um, it's referring to that new strategic plan that's come out. Sorry, go ahead, Haley. Yeah, just to add to what John was saying, I think uh, the strategic environment in the Indo-Pacific is becoming more competitive, uh, more uncertain, and countries everywhere are investing in their militaries. And more than that, there are these technological advancements across a whole range of new areas, a lot of dual-use technologies that have both civilian and military applications. And we can't afford to pay for those innovations just through public money. I mean, if you take one area, for example, under AUKUS, Australia, the US, the UK, 
Uh, we're all trying to create these new technologies under AUKUS's second pillar, which is advanced capabilities. Um, hypersonics is one of those advanced capabilities. And just in the last five years alone, the United States spent $8 billion US on developing hypersonics. It is a lot. I mean, um, it's hard when you start getting into the billions to actually conceptualize just how much that is. But beyond that, they are looking for and have asked for an additional $13 billion uh, from Congress to keep going with their hypersonics research. So when you think about that, um, and that's only one aspect of one part of AUKUS, um, that's a small part, in fact, of the national defense enterprise, you get a sense of just how much need there is to keep up with Australia's global competitors. Um, we have already fallen behind and part of Australia's advantage in the region is our military edge. So as that edge gets eroded, we are going to find need to find new and innovative ways to find money. Uh, where is all the money going to come from? And that's why we really do need to speak more to the private sector because there is also a lot of opportunity here. Um, and I mean that truly in the sense of a national opportunity, not just for defence, but because these technologies have so many multiple applications, like think of AI, um, investment in them can benefit the nation broadly. And that's why we need to start to leverage the private finance. Yeah. And you've alluded to this already, Haley, but um, because you've said that Australia is falling behind. But for those of us not working in DOD or finance, can you describe the current defense innovation and tech ecosystem in Australia and how it compares to the United States or other countries? Yeah, sure. So um, I would actually say, and I'd be interested to hear what John thinks about this too, but I wouldn't say Australia currently has a defense ecosystem. I would say we have parts of a system that are not totally functioning and that haven't formed yet an ecosystem, which is a mutually reinforcing system. Um, so if you can imagine what Australia's defense industry looks like, I've had it explained to me as an hourglass shape where you have lots of small companies right at the bottom, sort of a plethora of Australian small businesses. In the middle, there's virtually no medium-sized defense companies. And then at the top of the hourglass, there are all of these what we call defense primes, which are major defense companies. Think about Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Talus, um, but they're foreign-owned defense companies. So a lot of those are American. There's also UK and French. But basically, Australia doesn't have a lot of medium or large-sized defense companies. And so the Australian system looks like lots of small companies at the bottom and then lots of major foreign-owned primes at the top. And so what our report is really talking about is creating the defense ecosystem. And I might just throw to John there because um, he came up with a fantastic term to describe that. Thanks, Haley. Yeah, so uh, as Haley said, there's there's elements of what you might call an ecosystem in the Australian context, but I don't think anyone would pretend that that it's fully developed. So what we've talked about in the report is really developing a defence finance tech ecosystem, which has got a number of pillars and strands to it. And, and I guess what we're saying is those things aren't really joined up at the moment. Um, now, if we look at the United States, it's very interesting because the debates are so similar. Reading things like the, the recent defence strategies in both countries, um, the DSR and the Australian context, but then the Biden administration, even the Trump administration's documents, they're so similar in terms of defining what the challenges are, which is really 
basically saying that government can't do this alone. All of these technologies are largely coming through the private sector and with this backdrop of the rise of China and its capacity to throw masses of state funds and to mobilise across their whole uh, system and society for for their sort of military modernization. So we're all sort of grappling with the same issues. But even though Australia and the US have been allies for over 70 years, the backstories are quite different in a way. I mean, America's real now global superpower mobilized enormously for the Second World War and then really built the apparatus, the national security apparatus for the Cold War. Um, and that, by and large, exists in various forms. So you have this network of research organizations, universities that have been um, intimately involved in national security. But what's essentially happened towards the end of the Cold War is that some elements of that now have just been swamped by the rise of what you might just call big tech and the rise of the information economy. And that's significantly changed the American innovation ecosystem from one that used to be very government-centric, very much defined by national security tasks, where government took the lead and, and funded various big projects. Um, some of it then, you know, in a sense, spilled over to create Silicon Valley and the American electronics industry. But now we've sort of come full circle where Silicon Valley and the electronics industry are now the huge drivers of innovation. And what really, as Western capitalist economies, we're trying to do is how do we mesh that new world of innovation onto our national security challenges? Now, in terms of what the US has done, there's basically about two decade story, which which really begins with this um, company called Incutel, Inc Inc not-for-profit uh, Incutel, which actually has a... a, a presence in Australia and we've dealt with and they've been really helpful in the context of this report. But that was basically created by the US uh, intelligence community in 1999 to really draw on what was coming out of Silicon Valley way back then. That's in the sort of infancy, if you like, of um, the information economy and the digital revolution and to some extent the internet was still in its early days. Fast forward to 2015, you have something called the Defence uh, Innovation Unit created, which is really in the backdrop of the China challenge and the United, a lot of strategic planners in the United States recognising that the world has changed, but also we don't have the levers that we used to have in the old Cold War context to be able to stay at the cutting edge on military capability. So we need to do things differently. So They've been, I guess, experimenting in this for a, a longer period than us, but we're, we're sort of trying to, in a sense, learn lessons, but learn lessons based on a much smaller scale. And we have to keep that in mind. I mean, we're a tiny fraction of the US defense enterprise. So really what our report talks about is really um, learning from the US, but also recognizing that we're not going to be able to replicate these things. But there are some elements, for example, what the US is doing is they're really playing to our strength. So one of the important things is just to really understand what the Australian offering has. And uh, Haley mentioned AUKUS Pillar 2. That's a classic example. We have to mobilise what we're really good at under these things. And we need to bring the private sector in. 
Um, and we need to coordinate across government much better than we have in the past. So there's a number of threads which we go into in the report with specific recommendations, which sort of, which is not just private capital, but really focusing on the tech sector, but also looking under the hood of government and seeing how we can coordinate across government much better. And Ari, can I also just add to what John was saying to give more of a sense of the current context? And John gave a fantastic historical overview then. Just to give a sort of very current example of how this is a challenge and why it's a challenge for Australia is there are some amazing small Australian defence tech companies and their immediate incentive is not to sell to the Australian government and help us build up our sovereign capacity. It's to sell overseas. And you can also see how there's a lot of US investment in Australia, in Australian companies, um, which I feel like is a real missed opportunity for Australian venture capital, Australian private equity um, to back our own, to back people in our own country. So as an example, um, there is a massive US private equity firm called KKR. Um, they have you know multiple, multiple billions under management. I think um, last year they had more than $500 billion in assets under management. Yeah, they <laughs> talk about billions. But um, they recently invested more than $100 million in an Australian company called Advanced Navigation. Um, now, what Advanced Navigation is doing is pretty incredible. It's AI and robotics, and their tech enables robots to navigate in environments where there is no GPS, um, which I just think is mind-boggling. I mean, I can't operate without a GPS myself to find my way around. I don't know how a robot is going to find its way around without GPS, but that's what their tech does. And they've also been engaged by, by NASA, so they will be the first Australian company involved in you know, a mission to the moon. So this is a really impressive company, right? You would think Australian private equity would see that and be wanting to get in first before Americans. But in this case, um, KKR has funded the, the latest round of advanced navigation. Um, and it's a shame that we're not seeing more Australian private equity take up that opportunity. So um, I think the US is much more forward leaning in seeing some of the commercial opportunities that are available. And that's partly also what our report is trying to do is to try and open the aperture for Australian private equity like banks and super. Um, I mean, just um, you know, a month or so ago, we heard our treasurer talking about uh, how super companies need to invest in defence. So the government is already thinking along these lines, but it needs to give the right signals um, to banks and super so that they have more confidence that these are the right things for them to invest in so that we can really help this project along. So just to tease that out a little bit, um, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the hesitancy for banks or super to invest in this, but you mentioned that the you know smaller Australian companies are incentivized to sell their tech overseas. Um, and also we've got more investment coming from American or other companies in that um, innovation industry in Australia. Do we do you, do you have you worked out it, what are the whys behind that? What are the reasons that are driving those two trends, which might lead to that hourglass that you've described? Yeah, happy to have a go at that, and maybe also to bring John back in. But um, if you think of it from a small company's perspective, they first of all they need money, so they're looking for investment to actually build up their technologies. It costs a lot of money to just create and demonstrate a technology. Um, one of the only mechanisms that John and I are aware of is a new partnership between Export Finance Australia, Australia's export arm, and the bank Westpac. 
um, they have a new agreement to finance defence companies, specifically defence companies with startup capital. That helps to smooth the capital flow because a lot of the time businesses fail because there's not enough capital flow. The challenge though with that agreement is that it's only open to Australian companies that have an existing contract with a defence prime. So that's a, a hurdle, you know, that companies have to overcome, number one, before they can get some of that cash. Um, but the other thing that's really stopping Australian small companies from becoming medium and large sized is because in the Australian context, they really only have one customer, the Australian Department of Defence. And if the Defence Department decides they don't want to buy that capability, they don't want that Australian technology, or they can't see a pathway for it to come into service from for Army, AV or um, Air Force, uh, basically that technology becomes orphaned. And so there's a huge incentive for Australian companies to sell their technology overseas. So to give you another example um, of what it's like in the United States, for instance, there are at least seven different defence agencies in the US, all with their own individual procurement budgets. So there's multiple customers that Australian small companies can spread their risk um, to get their investment back and to actually make a profit. So in the US, there's like Army, Navy, Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, Special Operations, and who could forget? Space Force. Um, <laughs> so they can all buy um, from Australian companies. And so basically, they're kind of like cherry picking the best from around the world with their own budgets. Um, and so, yeah, Australia has this one budget Department of Defence. So there's not enough customers in Australia. And, um, you know, we talk about things being orphaned and we also talk about AUKUS. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind is the Collins-class submarine, which are the class of submarines that Australia is currently using. That was called an orphan class because Australia designed and built that submarine but then wasn't able to sell it overseas. So Australia has this sort of fraught history with having really fantastic designs, really clever things, some of the best scientists in the world. I mean, um, Defence Science, Science and Technology Group within the Department of Defence um, has world-leading radar capability to see over the horizon, um, so much so that it's world-class that we sell it to the United States. It's one of those rare examples where we do that. The capacity is here. It's just a matter of harnessing that capacity and uh, using a phrase, Australian saying and uh, give them a go. Um, but that's it's really hard. It's easier said than done. But this is what the project is trying to do is to facilitate more of those connections and kind of grease the wheels so that we can give these Australian companies a go. Yeah, look, I'll just add to that, Murray, briefly. I think so the report goes into quite a bit of detail about uh, and Haley's done a, a great job in talking to a range of stakeholders and players. But I mean, there are, there's no doubt there's a degree of frustration with elements of the Australian um, government processes around procurement and acquisition. And a lot of that's actually been recognised um, partly in the context of the Defence Strategic Review. And there'll be a, a major statement on defence industry policy later in the year. So government needs to do a lot on its own to better define what it wants, streamline its processes. And so companies don't just face the huge headaches of going into a process that can last years when their money is draining away um, and they don't know whether they're going to get a contract or not. So there is elements of um, we're in a different strategic environment and government just needs to really improve its processes. And, and we go into a bit of that as well. Um, and then there's, you know, to some extent though, these will be startups. They'll be 
companies that are taking risks and how do you get over what often gets called in the in the research literature the valley of death so you've got a um, you know you've got to a prototype stage for example but to really do that final testing and prototyping and getting something which may be a military application maybe a commercial application maybe both that's really quite expensive so what we're hoping to do is is really shine a spotlight on the whole opportunities that are there. And there has been significant growth in areas like venture capital and private equity in Australia over the past decade. So they, as, as in the United States, these are areas where lots of private money is flowing in. We all know our superannuation industry is large and growing, about the fifth biggest superannuation or pension system in the world. So there's lots of private capital out there what we're trying to do is sort of remove some of the barriers that might exist or some of the information problems that might exist to provide a better better scope for the private sector to grab these opportunities. So it is really interesting. And there does seem to be a certain level of Australian government awareness of these issues and trying to drive effort toward moving forward on solutions. Uh, so the government recently announced the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, which is the Australian version of DARPA. But we've seen similar governmental programs before for defence innovation um, and leveraging Australian industries, such as the Defence Innovation Hub and the Next Generation Technologies Hub, which are now being subsumed by ASCA. So how will ASCA be different and how can we ensure that it will be successful or work toward these solutions, maybe in a way that we haven't seen so far? Mari, fantastic question. Um, so I think it's important to understand ASCA, how it came to be and why it is the way it is and then reflect on what it could actually achieve. So just to sort of rewind a little bit to understand how we got to here, when the Labor Party was in opposition, they did propose an Australian version of DARPA, which at the time their sort of working title was the Advanced Strategic Research Agency, ASRA. Um, since coming into office, and I guess speaking with defence, speaking with stakeholders like Defence Science and Technology Group, um, that concept has really evolved so that it's not so much an Australian version of DARPA anymore. And to reflect that reality, there was also a name change. So it is now called the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator. And why that is important is because rather than advanced research, they are focused on um, capability acceleration. So what that actually means is um, you did mention the Defence Innovation Hub that we had and also the Next Gen Tech Fund. Um, and basically those operations, the, the operations of those two groups are being uh, absorbed by uh, ASCA. And the problem that they had with um, DIU and NGTF was that those groups were considered unsuccessful in terms of actually translating world-leading incredible breakthrough technologies into actual things uh, that warfighters, Australian ADF, Australian Defence Force, can actually use in the field. And so what they're trying to do with ASCA is create that missing link within government to actually translate technology into service. So that's not really what DARPA does. DARPA does breakthrough technologies. It created the internet. It created GPS. So those things didn't exist before. And thanks to DARPA and other groups, they now do. 
Um, ASCA is not going to do that. Its role is much more about identifying technology out there in Australian industry and then understanding how it can be translated into service. Um, but what that means as well is that Australia still lacks a DARPA equivalent. Um, the intention of the Department of Defence is for the hub of defence innovation to remain within Defence Science and Technology Group. And I used to work at DST very proudly. Um, it is full of incredible scientists and men and women that are trying every day to find new breakthroughs. But just like the US experience, just like what the US realised, is that a lot of modern day innovation is happening um, by young people in their parents' garages. I mean, um, that is how uh, people like Palmer Lucky uh, from Anduril, that's how he created uh, his virtual reality headset is in his parents' garage. So innovation is really being led by a younger cohort of people who are interested in joining companies like Google, Amazon, Meta. Um, they're not as interested in working for a stuffy defence bureaucracy um, that's based out behind the airport in Canberra um, and that's a real shame for us. We should be thinking of ways to get more young people into our defence department and create an exciting, dynamic, innovative place to work. But even privately, Australian uh, officials have told me they understand that um, the, the heart and the genesis of modern day innovation doesn't reside within government bureaucracy. It's out there in the field. It's out there in Australian industry. It's in Silicon Valley. And so ASCA is not trying to find those breakthroughs. And I think that's a really important point to understand. And there has been a lot of confusion about what ASCA is and what it's supposed to do. And the reason for that is because of that history I talked about, because the government in opposition was talking about DARPA. And so people immediately imagined, great, it's going to be these breakthrough technologies that don't exist that are crazy out there ideas. ASCA is not going to do that. And for that reason, it existing within the Defence Department isn't such a bad idea because it is not meant to innovate. So I completely get that. But I do think uh, some of the problems we are left with is that we aren't, we don't have a separate innovation hub for defence science and technology. Um, and we really do need to capture that because, as I said, a lot of the innovation these days is coming from the private sector. Look, I might just say, um, Haley referred to me at the top as an older gentleman. As an older gentleman, I only have the greatest—I <laughs> only have the greatest respect for our fellow countrymen working over there in Russell. I think they're fine, <laughs> fine, fine people, both the civilian and the military people. So I just want to put that as an older gentleman on the record. Um, <laughs> but look, um, sorry, Murray, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So I want to get down to brass tacks now, but let's talk about specific recommendations uh, with your report. And John, I'll start with you. Where and how should the private sector be investing in defense tech? Sure. Well, look, I think the first point I'd make is it's not really our job to be too prescriptive. Um, so one of our first recommendations, in fact, is that um, defense re really needs to take a pretty wide lens. We mentioned the Defence Strategic Review before. So there's a huge pipeline of, of items and we, we outlined some of them in the report, everything from um, you know upgrading of our bases in Northern Australia through to everything that needs to go with the nuclear subs program through to guided weapons, a whole range of things uh, around sovereign capability. So 
the demand is significant. So we don't want to necessarily focus too narrowly on tech. Yes, we're interested in tech and we, we devote a lot of attention to that. Um, but what we talk about is really three lines of effort. The first is around tech companies and companies with, um, with well-developed uh, ideas and products really in that dual-use space. And that can be really, I guess, the area that may be attractive to venture capital and private equity where they can see a capacity um, by using defense as really one leg of a much bigger growth path for companies. So it's not just a defense company. It's a company that doesn't really think of themselves as necessarily working for defense, but it gives it an extra an extra thread, if you like, for its growth plan. The second area is really around defense infrastructure. Um, and there, I guess, what we're thinking about mostly is areas of patient capital like superannuation funds. Some of the current big players already um, work with defense on various things, but there is, again, a big pipeline of work that if defense could sort of think laterally about, well, actually, we don't need to own this, we don't need to build this, it actually opens up their capacity to do other things and specialize in, in some of the areas where, frankly, we know private investors won't be as interested. And some of that relates to things like environmental, social and governance concerns and things that go bang, as they say in the, in the um, scientific literature. Um, and then the third area is really around the existing Australian SME landscape. And a lot of that, frankly, is government getting its act together and streamlining processes in a way that uh, traditional financial players like the banks can look and say, well, okay, I can understand that contract. I can go with this rather than it being a big black box that um, various companies either get frustrated or the banks think, well, we're not really going to have a defence asset class. We don't really need to have a degree of expertise within our bank to think about defence. So I guess they're the three main lines of effort um, that we're looking at. But again, we don't want to be too prescriptive. So Murray, I think the way that we need to think about this is not from the perspective of how should the private sector be investing in defence tech. It's really about understanding why the private sector would do this. So the private sector is not there for the public good. It's not motivated by the same things that the government's motivated by, which is national security. The private sector is there to make money. Um, and its investors is also, are also thinking, how are they going to turn a profit? So although we have things like government signaling through the Defence Strategic Review, um, it's really not enough to convince the private sector of what they should be investing in. The best way to give that signal is through government co-investment. So if the government actually puts its own money behind these projects, the private sector will understand that is a signal that the government is really serious about this. And I think part of the problem of why the private sector hasn't been interested before is because there has been so much change and churn in government priorities for defence. Um, think about the Orca submarine decision. I mean, that's almost the third uh, the third decision because at the first one, it didn't go to Japan, then it went to France, and now it has gone to the US and UK. So you can see that those requirements are changing and that creates more risk for the private sector. So government needs to think about how can it actually speak the language of the private sector? And part of that is co-investment. The other piece of the puzzle is also the right procurement contracts. Um, so there are a couple of things to think about in terms of incentivizing the private sector to put their money behind uh, defense requirements. All right. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, 
And now I'd really love to hear from both of you, but if you were prime minister and you could change one thing about government to improve what John described as the defense finance tech ecosystem, what would it be? I'm happy to start. Um, it's actually pretty fuzzy. It's mindset. Um, so there isn't the whole point really when I think about this is we're not going to fix this with a new org chart. You're not going to walk down a corridor and knock on the door that says the boss of defense innovation. That's precisely the wrong way to think about it. What we really need to do is bring together a different, a new network of people working in this area. And that's going to be bottom up. Um, nobody's going to sort of sit at the top of an apex of a hierarchy and say, well, look, these are the five things we need. Um, go away and make it happen. It's not going to work like that. It's got to be created from the bottom up by defence having much more interaction with lots of different players in the private sector, bringing them into a circle of trust where we can actually share information. Now, that's not straightforward in national security, as we know. So there are lots of issues around security clearances and things like that that need to be addressed. Um, and none of that would pretend would be without risk. Um, but again, I go back to the Defence Strategic Review. What it essentially says is that we are in a new world and we need to take strategic risk at the at much more seriously than we have in the past. So yes, there are risks that you could have um, all sorts of things could go wrong and you know you could be in front of a set of estimates uh, process explaining why such and such contract didn't work out precisely the way it could have. Basically what the DSR says, forget that. We're in a different world. We need to do things differently. And part of that is to bring in a whole network of new players and accept that we need to trust those players as part of this process if we're really going to build this tech ecosystem. How about you, Haley? Yeah, I mean, Mari, you said if you were Prime Minister, what would you do to change government to improve? Um, the first thing I'd say is um, if I was Prime Minister, I wouldn't be able to change it. That is how difficult it is. It, it doesn't just require ministerial level direction at the highest level. It requires buy-in from everyone willing to acknowledge the challenge and be part of the solution, which sounds, you know, um, a little bit soapboxy, but it is true. I mean, no one person can direct the change. Um, but in terms of, you know, one thing that I think would have an outsized impact in terms of what our recommendations were, I think it would be cultural change within the Department of Defense because the Defense Department is trained to be secure and secretive and protect you know a lot of its capabilities and its intentions for how it wants to use those capabilities that's what gives australia a military edge but in this new world that we're facing we can't afford the technology that we need we have to leverage private money but that means that we have to show more of ourselves to the private sector which opens up a lot of risk and psychologically for people in defense that's not what they are trained to do and to them will feel alien and they're also not rewarded for taking risks. Um, what we heard a lot in all of our conversations uh, across the board was that uh, government officials are trained to prioritise procedural risk because that's where the incentives are for them. If they remain in the guidelines, they can't be criticised and their, their seniors and ministers can't be criticised at Senate estimates for doing the wrong thing. So the emphasis really is on procedure rather than speed to capability. And no one in the department is being rewarded for taking risks and 
trying to prioritize speed to capability. Um, but we see extremely positive signs from the highest level people like Minister Pat Conroy, for example, saying that we need to do things differently, we need to take more risk. Um, Minister Miles has also said the same thing, our Defence Minister. Um, but it will require people within the department actually encouraging people to take risk. Um, the the example I like to use is, Mari, you remember when SpaceX had that um, massive rocket launch and the rocket exploded in space and then all of the staff of SpaceX were celebrating. Can you imagine Australian defence officials having a failure and then celebrating that failure? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why you need something separate to do the defence innovation, but it's also about um, celebrating taking risks and rewarding people for taking calculated risks. So the one thing I would change is culture within the Defence Department. That's so interesting. You know, we've got John talking about mindset and Haley talking about the culture change. And really, I think the psychology around all of this, those are very big, challenging things. But hopefully then places where a report like yours can make a significant difference. It reminds me a little bit of um, this old documentary I was watching and how the, in the realm of personal computing, when IBM was dominant in like the 80s, uh, they valued progress in terms of how many lines people could code and they it was just the more you could do like that's really what status was based on and apple's approach was we want to reward doing it in as few lines of coding as possible or we want to reward efficiency and they flipped the thinking and that really started a revolution within personal um computing so maybe we can see a similar change in terms of risk as something to be celebrated taking those chances um, because you really don't have innovation without taking some risk. Um, all right, so just kind of wrapping things up, I've got one more question for John, one more for you, Haley. Uh, but John, what would you say was the most interesting or surprising fact that you learned from writing this report? Mari, I think one of the most interesting facts was, was something I mentioned before, um, the degree to which notwithstanding we are at hugely different scales, we're actually defining the problem in a way between the United States and Australia in almost precisely the same way. So you could literally read the document and you'd have to remind yourself which government was writing it. So I think in a sense that's encouraging, but in terms of the factual basis, if you look at the total military expenditure of the top 15 uh, countries on military expending globally, the US spends about 39% of that total. We spend 1.4%. So that gives you an idea of the, the scale difference. And really that comes back, I think, Haley mentioned before the, the vast, you know, you have this huge network of the services and different agencies in the US. We cannot do the same. In, we have to just coordinate so much more because we have less resources so if you like, our margin of error is a lot less, um, which means we've got to get our act together quickly and we have to basically get over things like patch protection within the bureaucracy and really start to join up both across government and then with the private sector to get the job done. Well, and those percentages are quite strikingly different. Uh, it's very interesting. And of course, it's proportional. So that's very yeah. fascinating. So just an interesting thing on that is when you look down the list, and, and this was news to me, uh, where between Italy, which is bigger, 
and Canada, which is smaller on the, on military expenditure. Huh. Okay. That's why today I learned so far. Um, all right. So Haley, finally, what would you say is the next step from here with the upscale work? Yeah, so upscale, this report is the first um, in what will be a series of reports. Um, so there are so many things we can do from here. I mean, one of the recommendations out of the report was simply to map uh, the current landscape in Australia of um, Australian small and medium enterprise working in defence and technology because we don't have a good idea of what companies are already out there, what their capabilities are, and what their level of trust is, you know, how many of them have previously worked with the government. And just creating a map of those groups would be really helpful, both for industry, I think, so that we can identify where are the gaps in Australian industry that we would need to um, plug, and also for defence to understand um, what other resources it has at its um, disposal or use, rather than going overseas all the time for all our capability. So there's a mapping exercise to be done. But I think also looking at some other countries and how they are um, using private capital to finance their own militaries would be a very interesting research report. So I'm hoping that out of this um, initial project, we have a lot of follow-on projects. And obviously, um, if government decides to implement some of these recommendations, uh, we are at the start of a very long road. There's already work that is has started. Um but there are things that will need a lot of consideration and then investment over years. So I think we're at the start of a very long journey, but it's one that we need to dive into headfirst. So in other words, watch this space. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations on the launch of your report um, and on the completion of this phase of the upscale work. Uh, it's very exciting. And as I mentioned at the top of this episode, I'd like to hear your by the numbers factor stat related to upscale or private sector investment in national security um, innovation. So I'll start with you, John. Uh, what did you choose for us today? Okay, so I did a little bit of Google research and it was really around the transformation, not just of the US economy, but of the US um, research and development system in general. And an interesting fact that turned up, and perhaps this is not surprising, but um, in his farewell address, um, President Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex and we've sort of, we've all grown up with that being a sort of a bit of a scary idea. But what we all know is that um, we now live in a world of big tech. So if you look at R&D and you compare the top five big tech companies, so Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Apple and Meta, and the top five US defense contractors, so Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman, the defense companies spend less than 7% of the R&D spend that the big five tech companies do. So the big ogre of the military-industrial complex has sort of been swamped, frankly. And that, in a way, tells you the backdrop and the challenge that defense planners now have, that they're operating just in this entirely different economic context um, so that's why we're having to, as Haley sort of referred to, you know, find the, the, the people who don't really think of themselves as part of a military industrial complex, but trying to enlist them, if you like, into the whole defense innovation space. Oh, fascinating. And how about you, Haley? What's your by the numbers stat for us? 
Um, so look, I love listening to podcasts. I'm sure many of the people listening to this um, will just listen to this podcast and perhaps not open the report. Can I encourage people to open the report? Because there is one um, networking diagram John and I have created that I don't think anyone has seen before. Um, and I know it's going to be useful to a lot of people. It basically shows all of the public money um, pots that are available that defence companies or other people could draw from. So just looking at this map, I'm going to look at the biggest money pots and talk about those. So for example, um, ASCA, the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, will have $3.4 billion over the next 10 years. Um, the Defence Export Facility will have $3.8 billion. And one of the largest state-based resources is actually Breakthrough Victoria. Uh, that has $2 billion. And then finally, um, the biggest pot of money on this map um, is the National Reconstruction Fund. Not all of the National Reconstruction Fund can be used for defence, but the reason it's the biggest pot is because it's got $15 billion. And there's already been $1 billion marked for critical technology and $1 billion for advanced manufacturing. And both of those things are going to play a critical role in Australia's future defence capabilities. So there's some numbers for you. Wow. I love it. Thank you. So everyone, make sure that you go open the report at least to look at that table because it'll summarize um, some interesting information that they've compiled in a place that you can't find elsewhere. I highly commend it to you. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. I've loved getting your assessment of the kind of like defense, tech, national security, innovation ecosystem. Uh, and I really do get a sense that you've moved things forward on that in a significant way. And I can't wait to see what's next on the topic and next for your program. And as we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. We have our technology and security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy, USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes include a breakdown of the GOP candidate presidential debate, and a readout from the White House National Security Council staff, Kurt Campbell, Edgar Kagan, and Mira Rapp-Cooper. You can find these on our website at ussc.emu.au or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the new Upscale report on our website as well. Um, and make sure to subscribe to our research alerts so that you don't miss out on any new announcements of reports and research coming out from the center going forward. Haley and John, thank you so much again today. It's been lovely having you on. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry.